So I invite you uh, to take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. are going to be the verses that we're focusing on this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew racks uh, in front of you. Two more sermons left in our Ephesians series. Uh, we've made it this far, um, so we'll uh, look at verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6 this morning, and then next week we will finish off the chapter, which finishes off the entire letter. If you haven't been with us, the theme of Ephesians is this, that in the person of Jesus Christ and through his work, God is uniting all things in Christ. In other words, he's bringing unity to a fractured and broken world. And how, here's how he is doing this. Ephesians makes this very clear for us. He does this by filling the world with the presence of Jesus through the church, through us as we embody God's story together. What we've been focusing on the past few weeks is how new life in Jesus transforms our relationships, especially in the home. We've been talking about how there was a known household code in the Roman Empire. And the household code uh, basically said, this is how you are supposed to relate to others in the home. These are the rules of home life. And we've been looking at how Jesus transforms that code when it comes to the husband-wife relationship, to the parent-child relationship. And this morning, we're going to look at how it transforms the slave-master relationship. Now, um, in a moment, Lionel is going to come up and read this passage, and this passage um, is going to create all kinds of lingering questions for us. What should we make of this? And then especially as we think about slavery and the stain that it uh, has over our own uh, nation's history. Um, we're going to get into some of these things, uh, but as Lionel comes up and, and, and reads now, just listen to the text as you hear it this morning. Try not to read into it um, what you may or may not know. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, open the word to us this morning. Even more, apply the word to us. Help us to see and to believe that the story of Jesus transforms absolutely everything including our own hearts, including our own lives, including our own church, including our own city. We pray um, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would give faith where there is currently no faith, and we pray that you would increase faith where faith already exists. We pray this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Ivan Illich was a 20th century priest and philosopher from Austria, and he was once asked about what is the most uh, revolutionary way to change a society? Is it violent uh, revolution or is it gradual reform? These were the two options he was given, violent revolution or gradual reform. He gave a careful answer. Neither was his response. If you want to change a society, you must tell an alternative story. If you want to change a society, you must tell an alternative story. 
He goes on from there. He says, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. We have talked over the past weeks about how Paul, uh, throughout this letter, but then particularly in uh, the end of chapter 5 and now the beginning of chapter 6, how he is telling an alternative story. We've talked about how Paul, here in the section of Ephesians, is uh, borrowing from a common household code that was known in the Roman Empire. This code, as I said earlier, was meant to create structure for relationships in the home. In other words, it laid out rules for how to relate to one another. And so for Paul to uh, borrow this, this household code, and remember, as we've said over the past few weeks, uh, most of these ancient household codes address the same parties that Paul is addressing here, husbands and wives, um, parents and children, and slaves and masters. That's not exactly true, and I'll explain more in a moment. But the point here is this, that Paul borrows from this common household code, but he transforms it. He transforms it in light of Jesus. And that really brings us to our main idea for this morning. It's the main idea throughout the letter to the Ephesians, but specifically we're focusing in on it this morning. And the main idea is this, that uh, the story of Jesus transforms everything. The story of Jesus transforms everything. And I want to look at this from three different angles this morning. I want to look at how the story of Jesus transforms dignity. I want to look at how the story of Jesus transforms unity. And I want to look at how the story of Jesus transforms security. All right, you got that? Dignity, unity, and security. The story of Jesus transforms dignity. If you look at verse 5, Paul begins by addressing slaves. Now, this is a big deal, and this begins to bring us into what I mentioned just a a couple moments ago about how, yes, Paul borrows from the known household code of his day, but he transforms it. Because as we've seen over the past couple weeks, Paul began this section where he's really into this household code by first addressing wives. And we said that that was a big deal. Why? Because in ancient household codes, women were not addressed. In the next session, Section Paul begins by addressing children. In ancient household codes, children were not addressed. And now he begins by addressing slaves. Guess what? Slaves were not addressed in ancient household codes. This is a big deal that Paul begins where he does. Now, at this point, it's fair for you to say, okay, I appreciate the fact that Paul is addressing slaves. That in that way, he's giving them dignity, Uh, he's empowering them as moral agents who have responsibility. I get that, but there's this lingering question, maybe. There's a lingering question. After all, Paul simply begins by telling them to do what? To obey. How exactly is this an alternative story? How is Paul telling an alternative story here? 
It sure sounds like he's saying that slavery is acceptable. Isn't he perpetuating the institution of slavery? Why doesn't he just come out and condemn it outright? And if that's a question you have at this moment, that's a fair question. I understand that question. Let me say this as we go further. And this is true for any time we come to Scripture. We have to be aware of our tendency to read, our, read the Bible through our cultural lens. We have a tendency to read our cultural moment or past cultural moments into the cultural moment of the day in which Paul was writing. We have to be mindful of that, and we have to seek as best as we can to hear and to read Paul's words in the context of the day in which he was writing. We have to keep in mind the historical realities of Paul's day. So let me do this. Let me share with you some historical realities of Paul's day, and then we'll begin to talk about how what Paul is doing here is actually absolutely transforming the institution of slavery in his day. Slavery was a reality in the Roman Empire. Uh, As many as one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves during Paul's day. Uh, But what is a little bit different from uh, slavery, as maybe we are familiar with it in our country's past, is that there were slaves who served as doctors, lawyers, uh, all kinds of different people were slaves. And their vocations, their jobs were incredibly important to their master who had authority over them. So one-third of the population, as you can imagine, this was a big part of the workforce in the Roman Empire. Treatment of slaves, to some degree, uh, varied depending on the master. But in general, this was an oppressive and unjust system, marked by exploitation and abuse. Slaves had limited rights. Um, There are all kinds of stories that you can read um, about slavery in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries and how horrible it was and how uh, awfully slaves were treated. Uh, Their masters basically uh, owned, uh, controlled life and death over their their slaves. Now, there are other ways in which first century slavery was different than slavery uh, in our country's past. It was not limited to one race, so it was not race-based. All kinds of races in the Roman Empire had slaves, and it was not always forced. Um, Some volunteered, for example, to pay off debt. And it was not necessarily for life. It was possible to be freed after a certain point. So this is just kind of real quick, big picture, historical reality of slavery in um, Paul's day. Paul is writing, we have to remember this, this is like a, a specific letter. He's writing to a specific audience. He's writing to the churches in Ephesus. Um, we've said throughout that this really would have been a network letter. Uh, that circulated um, among various churches in Ephesus and in the region. Uh, He's writing this letter to followers of Jesus. He's writing this letter to Christians. It's specifically for them. And Paul is writing this letter to them in a culture in which slavery was a socially embedded institution. And what we need to realize is this, that if Paul um, used as his... Uh, agenda or his goal to just simply in this letter to the church 
um, to protest slavery and to uh, seek to bring it down completely as an institution, it would have been useless. Um, Actually, it wouldn't have been useless. Um, What would have happened was it would have put um, the church in grave danger. It was already in danger. You have to remember the church at this point in history was a a marginalized countercultural community. That's who Paul is writing to. And we can't forget this. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. He was imprisoned by the Romans because of his commitment to the story of Jesus. And so if Paul were to maybe take the approach of protesting slavery at the point of let's bring this baby down, it would not have gone well for the churches in Ephesus or for Paul who already found himself in prison. But what I want you to see, in light of all of that background, as we read Paul's words in context, his words are actually stunning. They're astonishing. Because guess what he actually really is doing anyway? He's bringing the institution of slavery down in a more subtle way. We we, we discover Paul's radical gospel priorities here. We discover how he is applying the story of Jesus in an incredibly radical way. So Paul begins by addressing slaves. Now, we, we said the same thing as we talked about how he addressed uh, wives and how he addressed children. For the original church communities, um, as they were gathered together for worship and would have heard this letter read, particularly at this section, they would have been blown away. Like You have to try to imagine slaves who were part of the church community. And Paul is not writing this letter to hypothetical people. There were people in this community who were both slaves and masters, especially when we think about, uh, I've read that maybe 20 to 30% of the population in a city like Ephesus were slaves. And then you count, you take into account um, many, many, many more who were freed men or or freed women um, who were previously slaves. This was a personal issue for these people. And when Paul begins by addressing slaves, you have to imagine, I can't imagine, what it must have been like in that church community to hear yourself being addressed. A person who in that culture had no power, no influence, no rights or responsibilities, by Paul addressing them, he is dignifying them. He is empowering them with rights and responsibilities. He's saying, you are moral agents with the responsibility to act. And he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling in context is more about doing this in the context of the presence of God. Not so much fear and trembling of your master, because the the gospel transforms um, our security, as we're going to talk about later. Um, It's more about fear and trembling in the presence of God to recognize that as you do your task, you have dignity, And you can do them as an act of worship to God. He says to do this not by way of uh, eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service, service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, still at this point, you might think, I hear everything that you're saying, but still he's telling slaves to obey. He's perpetuating the institution of slavery. But verse 8 is a significant transition. I'm sorry, verse 9 is a significant transition in this passage. Paul shifts from addressing slaves 
therefore giving them dignity, and he shifts to addressing masters. And look at how he starts. Masters do the same to them. Now, again, let's try to imagine being a slave in this community as you hear these words. Like, this would have been incredible. There must have been a a feeling of some kind of liberation and empowerment bubbling up inside of them. And then for masters to be told, do the same to them. What is the same? What are the same things that Paul's referring to? Most likely, it's an attitude and a heart that is governed by the lordship of Jesus. So in other words, Paul just kind of walked slaves through how to go about their their, their tasks and their lives in a way in which they recognize that ultimately Christ is their master. He governs their attitudes and their hearts. And now Paul shifts to the masters and says, you do the same. From now on, because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you must treat slaves with dignity and respect your heart and posture and motives must be governed by the lordship of Jesus. We, from Scripture, actually know how Paul concretely applied um, what he's walking um, the reader through here. Um, There's another letter in the New Testament called Philemon. You ever hear of it? It's one of those, if you open your Bible, it's probably, depending on where it is, probably one page Uh, It's this really small uh, letter in the New Testament. And the context of Philemon is really important because Philemon was uh, a guy who was a slave owner. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away. He had run away from Philemon to seek freedom. And he ends up connecting with Paul. And he starts to hang out with Paul. And he actually um, converts He becomes, he puts his faith in Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus. And now there's this question of, all right, what should I do, Paul? Should I go back to should I go back to Philemon or should I should I should I stay here with you? What Paul does is he says, okay, you need to go back, but I'm gonna send you with a letter. That's the letter to Philemon. I'm gonna send you with a letter. And essentially in that letter, he tells Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave but as a brother. I mean, for Philemon, he'd probably been like, I have no category for that. What what are you talking about? But Paul says, receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. So as we make application to that, like if you want to pay him to do work, great. If you want him to be an employee for you, great. But he's your Christian brother and you no longer own him. He is no longer your property. Now, here's something that's really cool. Um, Onesimus is mentioned in um, the letter uh, to the churches in Colossae. He's mentioned in chapter 4, I believe, along with uh, Tychicus. Now, Tychicus is mentioned at the end of this chapter, the end of Ephesians. And what we know is that Tychicus delivered um, this letter from Paul to the churches in Ephesus. But from Colossians, we know that Tychicus and Onesimus, hopefully you're following this, um, together delivered the letter to Uh, the churches in Colossae. The point is this, that those letters were written at around the same time, the same region as Paul was in prison. Do you see the significance here? 
Onesimus is doing the work of ministry. Onesimus, it's possible, joined uh, Tychicus in delivering this letter to the churches in Ephesus that would have announced this good news about how the story of Jesus transforms the institution of slavery. Rodney Stark is uh, a social historian, and I I love what he says at one point in talking about um, the early church and its influence in the first couple centuries. He says this, that what Christianity did was give people their humanity back. What Christianity did was give people their humanity back. Paul, in these verses, is giving humanity back to slaves. And actually, he's giving humanity back to masters. Because it is not God's design for true human life and flourishing to own people as property and to control them uh, and abuse power. That is not God's design for humanity. So actually, in these verses, he's giving humanity back to slaves first, but then also to masters. This is what the story of Jesus does. It transforms dignity. It gives people a place where they didn't have a place before. It, It empowers them as those made in the image of God who have a purpose to play in bringing God's kingdom to life around us. The story of Jesus also transforms unity. As Paul addressed slaves and masters in this church community, and as he began by addressing slaves, he was making it clear that they were a part of the Christian community. Slaves were members of congregations in the same way, at the same level as their masters. So are you getting a feel for this? Where, where Paul is going, his approach here is not about slavery right now in the Roman Empire. It's about what to do with the institution of slavery within the church. And by the application that Paul is making, he is uh, beginning to bring down the institution of slavery. And as we read uh, church history in the first couple centuries, it was the role of the church that actually, through its influence, um, brought a, a demise to the institution of slavery. And it really begins here with Paul telling the story of Jesus in a transformative way. Slaves and masters, equally together as brothers and sisters in the family of God because they are united by the person and work of Jesus. This is so significant here. Paul is using the gospel, using the story of Jesus to do what only the gospel can do. And this is why the church grew in the first few centuries in the way that it did. It's why it was so attractive to people, because it gave people their humanity back. He's doing, he's using the gospel for what only the gospel can do. And we're going to talk more about that um, when we talk about how the, the story of Jesus transforms security. But here we see Jesus, the story of Jesus transforms unity. Look at how Paul ends this section. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, catch that, all right, master, you actually are not the ultimate master. There's a master over you and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. God is not partial. As we stand in the presence of God as his people, we are united by who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, God created um, differences in people. He created various cultures, and so it's not that they're erased, 
But we don't earn standing with God through our culture, through our, our status in life. We are invited into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's unique. It's empowering. It brings us together despite whatever differences of life may be among us. Now, we can't ignore the reality that texts like this very one have been used to justify some of the worst forms of slavery throughout human history. Even slavery in the American South before the Civil War. How could that be? In light of what I'm saying, and um, past, in the way that I'm pastoring you to read this text, how could it be that theologians, church leaders, um, misuse this text to enforce and perpetuate institutions of slavery? I have two answers for you. Bad theology and bad ethics. Bad theology and bad ethics. The bad theology has to do with the failure to read um, Scripture going back to creation, that all people are created in the image of God, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That's kind of like basic theology that is, was overlooked. But it goes beyond that. It goes to an inability to read Scripture in context. Now, you hear us all the time, if you um, are a part of City Church, talk about the story of God, how the Bible is an unfolding story. There are so many reasons we do this. This is one of the reasons, because we have to learn to interpret every text in light of the overall story, to learn to ask the question, okay, where are we in the story? And there were so many theologians and church leaders who um, did not have this uh, storied understanding of the Bible, and rather took individual texts and misapplied, misinterpreted them, misapplied them, taking them out of context. But the bigger issue here is actually not bad theology, as bad as that is. The bigger issue is bad ethics, because the, the bad theology was propped up by bad ethics. You see, it ultimately came down to racism, viewing African Americans as racially in, uh, inferior, and wanting to hold on to the power that so many white church leaders had. They perpetuated the institution of slavery because it benefited them. And I really believe that the bad theology came out of the bad ethics. I mean, they're so intertwined. But that's how a text like this can be misapplied. But somebody like Lemuel Haynes, first uh, uh, black man to be ordained in the United States as a minister in the 18, second half of, he lived in the second half of the 1700s into the 1800s. He had good theology. Uh, he was a, a pastor in Vermont, and he believed that only when blacks and whites are seen as true equals can we taste heaven on earth. He said, only then will we see in America and in the church this holy affection of love to Christ that must unite us. The holy affection of, uh, to love uh, or love to Christ that must unite us. In other words... The gospel, the story of Jesus, is what unites us, regardless of class, regardless of race. It's the power of Jesus that has the ability to do this. And it creates unity, even in diversity. The story of Jesus also transforms security. I want you to look at a couple uh, places in this passage. 
First, um, verse 5, the end of verse 5, Paul says to do this with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then a little bit later, he refers to them as servants of Christ. Uh, And then in verse 7, basically do this as to the Lord. And then when he's speaking to to masters there at the end, he says, uh, who is your master in heaven? Paul is reframing all relationships in light of our relationship to Jesus. And the application here is that our relationship to Jesus gives us a security in life that we cannot get anywhere else. Here's why. Paul points us to the pattern of Christ continually in this section. Husbands, wives, parents, children, now slaves, slave masters. He's constantly all over the place saying, as to the Lord. He's pointing us back to Jesus. He's referencing Jesus. Jesus is the relational pattern here. He's the relational model. And what do we learn from the pattern or model of Jesus? Unbelievably, Jesus came as a servant. Jesus called himself a slave on our behalf. In Philippians chapter 2, which is a beautiful uh, passage of Scripture written by the Apostle Paul, he talks about how um, we are to look to what Jesus has done for us in both his model, but even more importantly, as we receive his work on our behalf that changes us. And he's able in that context to talk about how we are to think of count others more significant than ourselves, that we are to think of other people's interests as more uh, important than our own. Get this, the God of heaven and earth came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and became a slave for us so that we might have life, so that we might be made secure. And the gospel is amazing. It's the only thing that can do this. Because all over the place in life, we're trying to constantly uh, justify ourselves. We're, we're constantly trying to, to make ourselves right, to make ourselves look better than others, to gain control and manipulate others. Why? Because we have this sense that we are missing something, that we are lacking something, that we're in need, to be, we're, we're in need of being told that we're okay, that we actually are righteous. But as we know from everyday life, like we, we can't bring that about ourselves through what we do. We keep trying, we keep striving, and we don't arrive. But the good news of the gospel comes to us saying, Jesus did it for us. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. Jesus died a death in our place, and Jesus rose again in our place. And guess what? That's true regardless of your class, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your race. Jesus, through his power, is able to bring diverse people together. You see, we're we're so accustomed by the world to um, break ourselves up into tribes and to think of ourselves better than others. The gospel breaks down those walls. We saw that in Ephesians 2 and 3, didn't we? Jew and Gentile coming together, how Jesus becomes our peace. We have security in Christ that we can't find anywhere else. And guess what this means? It means that we don't need to seek to please people any longer. Do you hear that in the text? Paul says, 
not as people pleasers, but as unto Christ. Because we have security in Christ, because we are accepted uh, on the basis of Jesus' work for us, we actually don't need to uh, find our identity in how much other people, um, how, how highly they think of us. We're accepted and loved by God in Christ. It transforms everything. So we don't need to please people, but guess what? We also don't need to oppress people. Really, at root, um, when we think about these things, the need to please people, the need to oppress people, they actually share the same root, insecurity. Insecurity. Like Whenever we're trying to please people in life, it's rooted in insecurity. We don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel secure enough. And so we're trying to get the attention of other people so that they'll prop us up, so that they'll tell us we're good enough. We don't need that any longer because of the gospel. We're free. But also the need to oppress others is rooted in insecurity as well because we feel like um, to, um, to find real identity and meaning in life, we must find it in our ability to be better than others, to have control of others. The gospel brings an end to all of that. We are free in Christ to count others more significant than ourselves and to look to the interests of others as more important than our own. In other words, we are free to use power for good. We are free to use power for good. All right, in light of how the story of Jesus transforms dignity, unity, and security. Let's make application to our work. Because at this point in the text, at this point in the sermon, that, that, that's the direction for us to go to make application here. I, I said as I introduced the confession of sin that our uh, culture tends toward two different extremes. On the one hand, we despise our work. We, we think too lowly of it. We complain and grumble about our work. On the other hand, we idolize our work. We think too highly of it. Our self-worth is attached to our work. But what the gospel does, what the story of Jesus does, is it transforms our work so that work can become an opportunity for uh, worship and witness. Worship and witness. Worship unto God and witness unto others. Every one of us has agency. We have responsibility. Uh, we, in different spheres of life, have some level, uh, some of us more than others, but some level of power and authority. Are you using that for good? Are you being a good steward of that? You see, we're also reminded here in um, this portion of Ephesians that there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. Um, between what we might say, okay, this is my religious life and this is all other areas of life that fall outside of my faith or religion. The, the biblical worldview does not operate like that. All of life is to be lived uh, before God as an act of worship and as an act of witness to others. This goes back actually to the very beginning at creation. God gave the first humans authority over creation to care for people, places, and things. And he gave them a, a form of authority that was meant to represent himself so that as there were more humans, they would be drawn to the glory of God through the, the, the work of Adam and Eve, through them being good stewards of God's creation. God invites us to be caretakers of 
his creation, to be caretakers of his world, to care well for people, places, and things in a way that reflects God's glory. So, what about you at work tomorrow morning? Or maybe you're going to be working at some point today. Yes, we're going there. We're going to get specific. Um, maybe you hate your job. And that's, to some degree, that's understandable. But you are in that station of life at this point in time. What might it look like for you to approach your work with a posture and a heart of sincerity in which like, your perspective is, okay, actually, this doesn't have to be about the work itself. This is about worshiping God through my work. What might it look like for the story of Jesus to transform your motives, to transform your, your, your posture toward work? Do you work for Jesus? I'm not saying that we shouldn't have bosses or authority in life. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, do you ultimately work for Christ? Like what you do when your boss isn't looking um, lines up with what you do when your boss is looking because ultimately your Lord is Jesus. Regardless of your age, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your gender, you have power and authority. Are you using it for good? Treat people with dignity and respect is one of the key applications here. Now, what if you are an employer? What if you are a boss, a supervisor of some kind? There are people who work for you, under you. Do you care about the flourishing of your employees? You have authority. And assuming you're a follower of Jesus, like this is really important. You have been given authority by Jesus, not by the person ultimately who is over you, but Jesus has placed you in the station of life where you currently are, and if you have people under you, Jesus has given you this authority as a gift. You have power. It's not about what, what this text, starting with husbands and wives and through here to slaves and masters, what the text reminds us of is that it's not about what we can get from others. It's about what we can give to others. Do you use your authority and power for others? Or do you use it for your own gain? Treat those under you with authority and fairness. Do you pay people fairly, regardless of race or gender? Do you treat everybody equally with dignity and respect? The church should model for the world how this works. And too often it's the other way around. The church should model for the world how this works because of our worship and our witness. So the question is really this, what story are you embodying? What story are you embodying? Are you embodying the story of Jesus that transforms everything? Or are you embodying the stories of our culture? The stories of our culture are marked ultimately by domination, exploitation, and oppression. But the story of Jesus is marked by unity, dignity, and security. There's a story that is told of three medieval masons and a visitor. The visitor asks the first mason uh, who is working, what are you doing? In other words, what are you working on? The mason replies, I'm cutting stone. Second mason chimes in and he says, I'm making a living. And how about you, the visitor uh, says to the, the third mason. The third mason says, me? 
I'm building a cathedral for God and his people. I love that. See the bigger picture there, the bigger perspective? The bigger story of God's work in this world to bring unity to all things that have been fractured and broken is the story that informs our story. It's the story that informs our work. And so, yes, there are days, there are moments at work where we can't see the bigger picture, where we don't know what our purpose is, but it's the story of Jesus that gives us dignity, that gives us unity, that gives us security. And it empowers us to do our work with transformed motives and a posture of heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to embody your story more fully. For the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of the world around us, and ultimately as worship unto you. We thank you for Jesus, for his story, and how it transforms our stories. We thank you ultimately for the security that we have with you because of what he's done. I pray that you would help us more and more to make practical real-life connections between our faith and everyday and in, in, in our, in our living in the everyday stuff of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you have children who are in City Church Kids, you can go ahead and get them now.